Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Today is a very special podcast. I've got a, a city manager on from a town in Western Kansas. His name is Toby Doherty. And the reason why this one is so special or exciting for me is because it's really great to kind of show you somebody and let you hear from them who's actually working in the trenches to try to make this stuff happen. We talk a lot on this podcast about the way we would like the world to be. And, you know, while I, for many years, was a practitioner, it's been a number of years now that I've gotten sucked into this whole operation. And so my outlook has, uh, has, has been colored a little bit by that, I'm sure. It is awesome and just really invigorating to chat with someone who's out there doing this stuff, who is out there dealing with the realities of making a city work on a budget with a set of principles and a set of ideas working with elected officials, working with a broader public. I don't know if Toby considers himself a leader or not, but I can tell you in the national dialogue that we're having on strong towns and on building healthy, resilient, financially strong places, we need more people like Toby Doherty. He is, uh, to me, a guy who should be a national leader and should be someone that people should be listening to and, and taking advice from because here's a guy who is spending a lot of time and a lot of mental energy trying to actually make this stuff work. So with that, uh, let's get on to the podcast. Uh, I hope you get as much enjoyment out of it as I did. Thanks so much, everybody. You are listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Everybody, this is Chuck Marone with Strong Towns. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, I've got a very special guest one of our one of our members, a guy that I had a chance to meet and visit with this last year when I was able to head out to Hayes, Kansas. I've got Toby Doherty, the city manager of Hayes, on the program. Welcome to the Strong Towns podcast, Toby. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on. Hey, you live in a really unique part of the world, one that most people don't just pass through by chance. You kind of have to be wanting to go to, to Hayes to get there. Can you talk a little bit about the city of Hayes and just kind of give us the lay of the land on the ground there? Uh, Hayes is on, in western Kansas. It's on the high plains of western Kansas, and it is a traditional Main Street community of around 20,000 people. We have a uh, university in town, Fort Hay State University. There's about 5,000 campus students. And we are a regional shopping center for the, the uh, immediate rural area. And we are also a head or uh, an area where a lot of governmental uh, agencies, uh, state and federal, have their offices. Uh, it is a, a little bit different from what I would consider our peer communities in Kansas. Some of the other peer communities close to Hayes' side are, size are somewhat near larger metropolitan areas, and so they they function a little more as suburbs rather than, than standalone traditional Main Street communities. Our isolationist actually helps a little bit from that, or helps from getting away from the from the suburb suburban type feel. When you look at the other Western Kansas communities. Uh, you have what I would consider peer cities, liberal, Dodge City, Garden City. They are more agricultural, ag economy type focused, ag industrial economy. Hayes never developed an ag industrial economy, mostly because of our, our lack of, of, of available water sources uh, in the area. So it's, it's more of a, a governmental services sector. The three largest employers in town are the Hayes Medical Center, Fort Hayes State University, and then governmental services in general. It is a fairly affluent community, not affluent like uh, you would consider a wealthy suburb of a, of a metropolitan area. But as a just a traditional community, it's a fairly affluent community. They've typically made good fiscal decisions as a community. People are uh, uh, pretty conservative by nature, uh, especially from a fiscal standpoint out here. And so that has uh, sort of lended itself to the overall economic success of the community. Ellis County itself, where Hayes is located, is the largest oil producer in the state of Kansas, and it's usually consistently the, the largest oil producer. 
So the oil economy, while it doesn't completely drive the, the economy, it does help out. And the oil economy does pump a lot of dollars into the local economy. How long have you been there in Hayes? I came to Hayes in 2005. Okay. It's interesting to me because it was obvious when I was there that there have been a lot of changes and that things have been kind of moving in uh, in a positive direction. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, we had dinner at that one real nice restaurant in the downtown that seemed like a, a newer place. Can you talk a little bit about the shift that you've seen over the last 10 years in the downtown? And then also maybe talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you get out by the highway interchange and, and the pushes you've got out in those areas. Yeah, I, there's been sort of sort of three major areas of emphasis for growing and and redeveloping and developing. And, and the first is the the obvious low hanging fruit that a lot of cities I think try to capture, and that's the the retail growth. You put in infrastructure, you try to get retail. You know, the Home Depots, the WalMarts, the the Applebee's, the places like that. That is extremely important for us because we are predominantly funded as a as a city here by the sales tax. We are the only city in Kansas that doesn't levy at all a property tax for the general fund. That makes us unique. We actually levy some property taxes, but but not for general fund services. Uh, we are wholly reliant on on the sales tax for that. So retail investment is a, is, a, is a very important thing for us. And so we have done the traditional focus on growth, you know, to provide the infrastructure and try to help facilitate the the retail development. You mentioned downtown. Fifteen years ago, probably our most viable and highest revenue-generating properties downtown were used to store mattresses for the Holiday Inn Hotel and Convention Center. <laughs> uh, that was the highest and best use for the property at the time. The leaders at that time, they knew that we had a unique downtown. We had a lot of potential downtown, but something needed to change. And it started out with a business improvement district, and then it, that morphed into what's, what's called Downtown Hayes Development Corporation right now. They worked initially with a with a single developer to rehab uh, some buildings. A uh, historic district was created, and and there's been a lot of local investment in the in the downtown area. I guess the anchor tenant you could say was a uh, brewery that opened up, uh, Liquid Bread Brewing Company. Uh, it opened up, I believe, in 2005 or maybe 2006, early 2006. It's a rather large brewery restaurant. Been very successful since day one. Uh, has won gold medals at the the Great American Beer Festival. I mean, it's 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 just an amazing anchor down there, and and we have had a lot of subsequent growth to this day. The growth is still going on. I was out driving around the other day, and I noticed two more businesses had, had popped up that I hadn't hadn't noticed before, and they're very tastefully done. They're 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 local. They are uh, they aren't the chain type businesses. They're they're local businesses trying to fill a need. Sure, sure. And and then I I did mention there was three. The third thing that sort of has been going on in the community over the past 15 years is an investment in quality of life amenities. The residents in the previous comprehensive plan in 1994 spoke very loud and very clearly, we want more and updated quality of life amenities. And so the city has used predominantly sales tax, either through general fund sales taxes or special sales taxes, short term, two, three, four years. Uh, we built a new library downtown. Uh, we rebuilt the municipal pool and, and, and built an aquatic park in its place. Uh, we built a sports complex on the west side of town that has eight football fields, soccer fields, and, and eight softball, baseball fields. We have Im- implemented a parks master plan where we greatly increase the facilities available in the parks, the shelters, the restrooms, things like that in the parks. And this was at the, uh, again, at the demand of our residents. Uh, we recently implemented 21 miles of on-street bike lanes. Uh, we kind of missed the curve of the 12-foot multi-use path paid for, you know, 80% by the federal government. And we missed out on those dollars and, and just because of uh, a lack of a coherent plan. And so when we finally got around to, to actually doing something, we figured that our best and most economical option was an on-street system. And it's worked out pretty well. People wanted it, and people are actually using the system now. And it's and it's going to be a lot more efficient and economical to take care of than the canvassing your city with multi-use paths. You mentioned the sales tax. And I'd like to see if you could talk a little bit more about 
being a city that is so reliant on the sales tax. I mean, Josh McCarty, one of the guys with Urban 3 that I work with a lot, described you as an Australia kind of place because you are pretty remote. There's a good reason why the sales tax makes sense because you kind of draw people from a very large area to you because there just isn't a lot of other places to go. But that does have a distorting effect in a way. Can you just talk a little bit about the sales tax and some of the the good and maybe some of the challenges that you as a city manager face with a sales tax-based system? Well, the good is we are leveraging our position. I love the Australia analogy because, you know, uh, we do feel a little bit like that with our isolation out here. Ellis County is consistently, uh, according to the Kansas Department of Commerce, we consistently have the number two retail pull factor in the state of all the counties in the state. Uh, and that means that we are pulling way more people from outside of our county than inside the county to shop here. Back in 2004, it was actually put to a vote. Sales tax issues like this have to be put to a vote. Uh, but the residents voted to remove the property tax levy and replace it with, at that time, it was a three-quarter cent sales tax. We already had a small portion of our sales tax to vote to the general fund, but they they voted to replace the, the levy, which was about, uh, I believe, 15 mils at that time with a three-quarter cent sales tax. There was a lot of preparation done for, for this in looking at past sales tax trends and, and, and what, what we had figured out at the time. And this was I, I was dealing with this right as it came online, so I wasn't part of the prep work. But what they had determined was our sales taxes, even though there is more volatility in sales tax, traditionally it had been pretty stable. We are a retail shopping area, but we aren't a... Uh, destination retail shopping area that depends on discretionary dollars. We're more of a staples type shopping area, not staples to companies, staples yeah, yeah. as staples goods. People come here to go grocery shopping and buy school clothes and, 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 and buy their vehicles and farm implements and things like that. So there, while there was volatility, it, it wasn't nearly the volatility you'd see in, in some other communities. And so they leveraged that position. One, because it was, uh, to them, a, a better way to capture the revenue. But two, the, the people that come into town, they also utilize our fire services, our police services, our parks, our streets. And, and so the, the prevailing thought was, let's let them help pay for part of it. So that's what happened in 2000, in 2004. The vote happened in 2005 that the switch was made. One of the, what I would call the biggest issues that we have to deal with is not so much volatility. We, we rode out the, the recession of 2008, 2009. We rode that out pretty well. Uh, we trended negative for a little while. We flattened out and, and, and then we started growing again because you would see new car sales down, but you would see used car sales up. People still had to buy vehicles. Sure. Uh, so it sort of evened out a little bit. The big issue we've had to deal with with the sales tax is getting to the strong town's philosophy is, is the sales tax has created a disconnect between the drivers of our growth and, and the revenues generated to pay for some of that growth. Right now, we have a, a, an economic model where normal residential, and I'm not talking large lot, I'm just talking normal size residential lots doesn't generate enough property taxes to pay its way. I would say that many types of commercial industrial development, they don't pay enough property taxes to to pay their way to cover the cost of providing streets and then the general services. Uh, only the the retail development will actually pay for its way. And and that's been the most troubling aspect is trying to trying to address this issue of the disconnect created by the sales tax. You wind up with this situation, and, and I think this is where, you know, when we had our conversation there and when I was able to, to meet with your staff, where a lot of the things that other cities would do that would logically raise property values, from a revenue standpoint, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but there's less of a direct connection. For, for example, we looked at putting in some bike lanes to make it a little bit easier for people to get from the neighborhoods that were just a few blocks from the downtown into the downtown. You've got a hard time making an economic argument, or at least the same economic argument, because while that may make the properties more valuable and the businesses more successful, you're essentially just displacing <laughs> sales that would go to the edge of town back to the downtown. How does that sales tax kind of shift maybe some of the ways you approach these conversations? Well, it, 
we we haven't defined uh, we haven't found the answer to that yet. Yeah, you know it, it's interesting. Every year I do a, a staff retreat with with my executive staff. This year we decided we're not going to do a traditional you know two day retreat. Go somewhere and talk about philosophical issues. Um, we were going to do a, a a fiscal analysis of the city of Hayes using tactics we learned in strong towns, and it was wildly successful. And we met uh, every month for uh, a full day every month as the executive staff. And during this process, early on, we were enamored by some of the stuff that we saw from Urban 3 and some of the, the analysis that showed the property tax per acre and things like that. And I went to uh, my GIS coordinator and I showed him some of the stuff and I said, can you do this? And he said, yeah, I think I can. And so we, we turned him loose on this and and about halfway through the process, this is about a six-month process we went through uh, to do this analysis. About halfway through the process, we were having a meeting, and we had spent probably two hours going through, you know, property tax per acre and 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 population density per acre and and all of this and all these neat charts and graphs and and Google Earth overlays and things like that. And somebody finally posed the question: How how pertinent is this to us? It looks great, but right. doesn't mean anything to us. Right. It was a great question because, in the end, not as much. It, it doesn't mean, and that's you know, with with the strong town stuff, I have to filter some of that, knowing that there are communities that are wholly reliant on the property tax. So that is the that is the the, the core issue of of one of the things that we're going to have to deal with. We have a funding model that is set up in one way, but it is it is causing issues with a certain type of development, uh, but. Based off of things that we've learned through strong towns and 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 other communities are dealing with, a lot of the core issues do remain the same, and I think a lot of the core tactics are the same. Because let's take streets for an example. I would say most every other community in the United States, um, when we accepted a new street, we didn't pay attention to what that street liability was. We did we didn't know what what annual liability we were accepting. We just took a new street. For a while, we wrote it off as really good because a, a developer might pay for 30% of it and the rest of it will be special assessed. And, and so it's not costing us anything. And so sure, we'll take it. Well, we have never had a dedicated revenue for streets in Hayes that covered the cost of the liability. Right. Uh, we get a little gasoline tax money from the uh, state of Kansas. But that, like the federal gasoline tax, it's not indexed to inflation. And so every year we actually lose money um, in relation to the year before of what it's worth, but it seems like every year we add streets. Uh, so when I go back 25 years, I've lost 25% of my funding, but I've added 20% more streets right. in the last 25 years. And so, you know, we, we, we've, we've accepted all of this liability, but we finally, we finally put a number on that. We quantified it. And one of the things I suggested to the governing body is, you have a $2.5 million annual shortfall on what you should be spending for street maintenance and reconstruction, and your real, uh, your, your dedicated realized revenues coming in. It's $2.5 million shortfall. One of the suggestions I made to them is don't compound the liability. We have a lot of streets that are undeveloped. We've made a lot of proactive investments. We've made a lot of, we have a lot of underutilized property. So there's where the the strong towns philosophy can come into play from a from a retail perspective, from a sales perspective. You know, the the more we can make our existing infrastructure more viable and encourage development and redevelopment, the more sales taxes we can generate off of that ex- infrastructure without adding more infrastructure, and hopefully we can close that gap up a little bit. You and I traveled around, and we were out on out by the hotel where I stayed at, and at one point we were driving along, and there was a kind of a parallel highway to the highway that went through, or it was a, it was a backage road of some sort. Explain that a little bit and explain maybe the, the dialogue that we had or the, you know, kind of the, the thought process of how that came about and maybe why that might've made sense before you knew what you knew today. Well, to me, this is a perfect example of what happens when you spend other people's money. Because we, we leaned very heavily for a lot of years on the bank of KDOT, the Kansas Department of Transportation. And KDOT funded projects all over the state at 80-20 cost share, 80, 80% on KDOT, 20% in the locality. And that money dried up last year. And it, it's no longer available. And so 
what what you saw was uh, we refer to them as the reverse access roads. US 183, which is a, a federal highway, bisects Hayes almost north to south. And north of the interstate, uh, we were rebuilding, the, we and the state were rebuilding US 183. So we had a lot of different, and the engineers come up with a lot of different uh, ways you could go about this. And it was a complete reconstruction. And so you could build a parallel road, and it was going to be a, it was going to be four lane divided uh, with the center median. And and the solution they came up with, which only cost us a little bit more because we were we were only paying twenty percent, was let's build reverse access roads north to south that paralleled the road. We could then, when we have the main road shut down for a mile and a half, we can funnel traffic through those. And then when it's said and done, we have all this this infrastructure in place. We put our water, we put our sewer in, we put our storm sewer in, we have our roads in place. And oh, by the way, now when it's done, you have all of this infrastructure in place for development. So you're just going to be ready to go to develop. Because this is the trend uh, the development trend that was going was it was growing north of the interstate. So we took advantage of that. We only paid 20%. KDOT paid for the bulk of it. We put it in place. And by and large, and that was in 2005 is when this was, was going on. And by and large, the most bulk of that infrastructure goes undeveloped. You can imagine what happened. The land prices immediately went through the roof along the infrastructure and then the cry from all the potential developers or buyers were, you know, the, the land's too expensive. Um, you need to put infrastructure in somewhere else because we can't afford to buy up here. And, and so the, the infrastructure has gone largely undeveloped. And whenever I drive up there, I, I kind of shake my head because I, I'm looking at storm sewer inlets and, and, and concrete that I will be replacing before there's ever development within a half mile of it. Right. <laughs> but again, if we were if we were making that calculation, spending our own money, we probably wouldn't have done it that way. Right, because you just wouldn't have had the the cash first of all. But then second of all, you've got to be a little bit more worried about the return when you kind of have this immediate cash flow issue, right? Exactly, and yeah. and and there, I, I have an even better example of spending other people's money. We have a a major arterial that runs into our downtown. It was the the old highway before the interstate was built. Uh, it's 8th Street. 8th Street comes from it comes from the airport, it goes through an industrial area and then it goes into our downtown and then over to Fort Hay State University. And we spent many millions of dollars back in 2004, I believe, rebuilding 8th Street through the downtown immediate downtown area to the university. But from the edge of downtown through a an older commercial area and then back through an industrial area, uh, it, it needs rebuilt. It's, it's an old concrete street. There, the, the base is we have problems with the, with the substructure, and it needs to be rebuilt. And yet we've never seemed to be able to find money for that. And so because of, again, spending other people's money, this year we opened up uh, 41st Street. 41st Street is a mile-long stretch of, right now it's three-lane, uh, curb and gutter, storm sewer, and it is a backdoor entrance to our community through a residential area, and that's all it will ever be. Uh, it's not set up for commercial, it's not designed for commercial, and it's experiencing residential growth. This is one of those streets that, that every every city has. It was a county road. It was uh, probably a gravel road at one time. They went in, they did a double chip seal on it. They turned it into an asphalt road over the years. And, and then we experienced housing growth along that arterial. And so what happens when somebody buys, somebody leaves their house in the middle of town and they move out to the, to the edge of town? The first thing they want is a sidewalk, and the second thing they want is a park, and the third thing they want is a street that looks like the street they lived on in town. And so what happens is everybody gets out there, and they, they live on these brand-new streets, and then they have to drive a quarter mile, a half mile on this two-lane asphalt road. The road functioned perfectly. Right. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it. It's just that the people demanded something different. And so over the years, we listened to them, and we put this on the capital improvement plan. And so this year, we opened it up. Well, the the residents at large and KDOT spent $3.8 million on this road. That is a backdoor entrance to our community that carries 2,600 vehicles a day. Meanwhile, 8th Street goes unrepaired. Uh, we don't have the money for that. 8th Street... We could have spent $2.5 million to replace it, 
and it carries 7,300 vehicles a day. It's an entrance to our downtown, and, and to our and it's a, a significant potential to generate uh, revenue. Those are the types of calculations we weren't making five or six years ago when we were getting these things lined up on capital improvement plans. Those are the types of calculations we are going to be paying attention to going forward. I'd like to start getting into our strong town stuff, but but even more importantly, start to ask a different set of questions about this. Because I, I have the impression that you, a lot like me, got started in this doing things the way you were kind of taught to do it and other people would do it. But you've come to a very different place now. And I'd like if you could just talk a little bit about that transformation, you know, how you went from, I don't want to put words in your mouth and I don't want to make it sound like you were not doing a good job before because I, I don't think that was the case, but certainly your thinking has changed over time and your awareness of, of certain issues, as has mine, changed over time. What's that transformation been like for you? It's been an interesting transformation because I would argue that deep down intuitively, I knew the answers, or I knew the problems, the core problems. I just hadn't asked the right questions. The question to me then becomes, why wasn't I asking the right questions? And that's that's where I'm not really sure how I how I made it so long without without that duh moment. You know, sure. that's that's and and I, I say that tongue in cheek because when I discovered the Strong Towns organization, I, I sent a link to our city attorney um, and I said. Go to this website, watch the little video there, download the curbside chat and read it. And I get this email from him about two in the morning that same day. And, and it was it simply just said, duh, yeah. you know, yeah, <laughs> it's like a light bulb went off in his head. Right. Um, right. But then he said, why didn't we realize this before? And, and I'll use my, my tenure here in Hayes. There are a lot of high profile issues you, you, you spend your time with. Water is a, a huge issue for us. We're in an arid part of the high plains. We don't get much rainfall. We don't have much locally available water sources. And we spend a, a lot of time dealing with water conservation and, and trying to find additional water sources. Uh, we have a wastewater treatment facility that needs to be rebuilt uh, to the tune of, of 30 some million dollars. Uh, we have other issues, very high profile issues that, that, are, that are going on. And, and sometimes you just don't have the, 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 the capacity to get down into the nitty gritty uh, and ask those questions you really need to be asking. We were a victim as a community of the capital improvement wish list. It was a classic. I mean, you, you could use ours to teach college courses on capital improvement plan wish list <laughs> because everything that we thought might be a good idea, we would stick it out at year 10. And then that thing migrated its way up the capital improvement plan. And by the time it hit year five, our assistant public works director who does our, 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 our in-house project management, he would say, well, you know, it's year five. I need to either contact KDOT or start lining up preliminary engineering, things like that. And then by the time you hit year three, it's a priority. Nobody knows it's a priority. Right. I remember in 2007, we were we were looking at, again, the, the wish list. We were looking at extending 41st Street to the east. Uh, this would be truly a road to nowhere. Uh, we, we had no plans for infrastructure other than street. We were going looking at going uh, two miles to the east, but then it would just connect to a gravel road, and there was nothing out there. Uh, it could complete a loop, but that would depend on the county redoing their roads and some other things. Well, it was two phases, this extension. We had been awarded phase one, and and we had been declined twice uh, by KDOT for phase two. And so I got a call from one of the, 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 the gentlemen locally who was on the KDOT selection committee, and he said, you know, we're really not thrilled with this, this phase two. We suggest you don't submit it again. We had already been awarded phase one of this. This is the first mile of it and actually started the process of acquiring right-of-way. Sure. I, I guess that was my first my first just slap-in-the-face introduction of why are we even thinking about spending this money on the, on this street. This thing is going to fall apart. We'll be replacing it before we, before we have any economic development out here. Um, we have no infrastructure in place. We have no plans to put infrastructure or money, water and sewer, storm sewer, and oh, by the way, we just invested millions of dollars in a bunch of infrastructure not two miles away from it that is unfilled. Yeah. And so I went to the governing body and I suggested they turn the grant down. And and we had a great discussion on it and 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 they turned the grant down. That was the first the first introduction to me that something something needs to change. We started talking about our water lines and we put together the beginnings of a water line replacement program. 
And then we started talking about our sewer lines, and I realized that you know we have 120 miles of, of sewer lines. Uh, we have 1,500 manholes, and we've never budgeted a dime for replacement or rehab of any of these. And so we started with the low-hanging fruit with the manholes. Um, we hired a company to come in and help us with our sewer cleaning. They also provide video camera and, and, and GPS coordinates, so we have a good idea of just not only what our infrastructure looks like underground, but pinpoint coordinates as to where, where the problems are at. Uh, that all took time. And then as we're doing this, the sinking realization that, you know, it doesn't matter what I find, I don't have a capital rate in place that's going to cover this. Right. Uh, in the sewer system, we didn't even have a capital rate in place. And, and so it was kind of a slow culmination of all of these things kind of operating independently. And about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, I was having uh, coffee with the county administrator. He said, hey, have you heard of this strong towns organization? I said, no. And he said, go check it out. It's kind of neat. And he had stumbled onto your website and, and, and listened to a few podcasts. And so I went home that night and uh, I, I went on the website and I started reading. And, and again, it was, a, it was like a light bulb went off. Uh, it, it was all of these thoughts that had been bouncing around independently in my head. Now they were coherent. You know, now I could get it. Now I realized how I need to be looking at the community and, and, and at least the, the core set of, of, of principles and tactics and philosophy to evaluate the community. So it, it, was, it was a little bit of, a, of an aha moment for me. How tough has this been with the staff? I got a chance to sit down with your staff for a couple hours. A lot of really bright minds there and a lot of good people kind of oriented, I think, in a real positive way. But even so, this is kind of hard. Uh, you're asking people to consider a different set of questions than maybe they would if they worked in a different city. How tough has this been from a staff standpoint to kind of change the ship around a little bit? The initial buy-in and getting them to participate in the, in the overall philosophy has, hasn't been that hard. And, and that's because of that, that, that factor that, that at, at defining the core set of problems, they're almost irrefutable. The problems we run into isn't the solution side, because right. there are there there isn't a one best way. There's not even a, a primer of the ten best ways. It's all going to be dependent on the locality and and what their threshold is for for solving the problems. And so that's where we have the most heated discussion at the staff level. I believe uh, it was when you were visiting with the staff. One of my my staff members, who's the, the more the the analytical engineering type. He said, look, I get it, Chuck. I get what you're saying. Tell me, tell me what I need to do. Give me the plan, <laughs> right. and I'll follow it. And you were trying to come back with, there is no plan. Yeah. Um, I can't give you a plan, but, but he needed that plan. And so that's been the toughest part. And, and that's why when, when we rolled out the, the, the findings to the governing body, we didn't talk at all about solutions. Uh, and, and we made a, a, a concerted, a conscious effort to not talk about solutions because solutions are tough and solutions are tricky and you get in the weeds extremely quickly when you start talking about solutions. We wanted to define the core set of problems, sustainability, uh, funding issues, just define these problems and then talk about the fact that status quo is not an option. Something needs to change, but right now we're not sure what it is. That's only going to come about through a, a, a pretty healthy community discourse on the, on the subject. I want to get to that community discourse, but I, I want you to describe the interactions with the city council and how, how that went. You know, a lot of times city councils want to hear happy things from their, their administrator, and you've been delivering some, some kind of tough medicine. How's that been received? And where have they struggled? And, you know, how have you overcome that? It's been received well. From, from the initial uh, discussion we actually, last week, we had a, a work session agenda item called Strong Towns Continued Discussion. The intent of that agenda item was to essentially let the commission know what we've been working on for the last six months, how we are evaluating things with, with a little bit of a different viewpoint than we were before, and just keep them up to date. Keep them in the loop. Keep this, this idea fresh because, you know, Strong Towns isn't something you just point out a problem, here's a solution, and you forget about it. Uh, there's no magic pill to take to care, take care of the issues. They have received it very well. It's been very positive. The, the, the devil is going to become as we continue to live this going forward. 
And that's when the troubles are going to begin because one of our developers came in about uh, three months ago, I believe, and he was looking at developing a, it's a residential developer, looking at developing a parcel of property. So we did a, a, an analysis of it and, and we looked at pedestrian access and traffic and, and, and parks and everything. But then we started, we started applying the new metrics to the development. Uh, you know, how much, how much are you costing us per acre, uh, general services? How much are you going to cost us to light fire police? What's the annual street liability we're going to accept, even though your development's going to pay for those streets initially? What's our annual liability? And then does this generate enough revenue to cover that? And quite frankly, the answer was no. And we gave them that feedback. Developers don't want to hear that feedback. They want to hear that, you know, they, we, they want to talk about secondary benefits. Right. Uh, and, and I'm looking at direct benefits and direct costs. And and I think that's what got us in the trouble with a lot of development, especially economic developments. When you look at secondary and tertiary benefits and recirculating dollars and all of that, forget about the direct costs and the direct benefits. So I think the problem is going to be as we continue at the staff level to essentially live the strong town philosophy and, and we give feedback that was, was inconsistent with what was going on in the past and we value things differently than what we did in the past. And we apply a different method, a matrix to how we then we apply things in the past. That's when the the trouble is going to start because it sounds good right now, but when people actually have to live it, some people still aren't going to like it. Uh, a lot of people are going to like it, but some people are going to like it if it means they have to change their, their business model. They aren't going to like it, and that's when they're going to give the elected officials the hard time. And 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 then it just becomes a matter of I hope that I'm on sound enough fiscal footing to make sure that, you know, that we are in a good position to, to stay ahead of it. Um, I've made no bones about the governing body. It's not going to be easy. It, 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 it took us a long time to get to the position where we're at, and any solution is going to be difficult. The thing that makes it, I think, the most difficult for the city of Hayes is we're not responding to crisis. We are in an extremely good position. We have very low debt levels. For the most part, we pay as we go for uh, we pay cash. We pay as we go for capital projects. We are are very fiscally sound. As I said, we're a, a, a fairly affluent community, not rich, just a, a fairly affluent community. Um, we have been proactive. We have nice things here. It's, it's a nice community. So what I'm doing is the equivalent of pointing at the iceberg 200 miles away, right? Saying you can you can chart course around this iceberg. But you need to start preparing now because the closer you get, the harder it's going to be to steer around it. And it's it's always more difficult to have those proactive conversations than it is to wait till you hit the iceberg and then come up and clean up the mess. And, you know, if you think about any any disaster movie, the hero a lot of times is the one that cleans up the mess after the disaster hits. And the kook's the one in the, in the beginning that points out the disaster is coming and nobody wants to listen to him. Right. <laughs> and so, you know, we're in a little bit of that situation. We're trying to stay proactive. And so we have to be very certain and we have to have good empirical evidence in order in order to do this. And, and I think we do. It, it's just a matter of we have to keep... We have to keep our message concise and focused and, and backed up by, by quantitative analysis and good empirical evidence. And, and that's the only way we're going we're gonna to continue to chart the course. You've been going to the Rotary Clubs and the service organizations and, and starting to share this message with the broader public. What, what's the reception been like there? Positive. Uh, people, people seem to get it. And, and I've, I've spoken to, to larger groups, smaller groups. The initial reception is, is very positive because, you know, we, a lot of times we try to equate it to uh, personal finances. If you, you, you spend a little money and you get in debt, um, you know, what are your options? You, you go bankrupt, you can take on a second job, you can, you can cut back on your spending. I mean, you know, there's, we, we try to equate this to, to real world scenarios. And I think when you do that, people get it and, and people understand that, um, Sustainability isn't just a buzzword. Everybody's dealing with sustainability. And, and so when I start talking about unsustainable trends and, and, and making changes, people get that. By and large, I think that the people that have been the most resistant um, are the ones that are going to have to change their business model a little bit. Sure. And there's, a, there's another factor that, that I think is complicating, going to complicate things here. 
Uh, as I mentioned before, we have some extremely high land values around the city. We also have a pretty successful community. It's a, it's it's kind of a white collarish type community, and our housing prices are are fairly high. It's something that we've had for a long time. We've had, and and also the students uh, with Fort A State University, um, they drive the housing market up because it changes the paradigm compared to a city that doesn't have a university. Right. Uh, the, the students can go in and rent a, a three-bedroom house by the room, and they're going to pay rates that a family will never be able to pay for that three-bedroom house. And so they, they skew the market a little bit. But there's a lot of factors that lead to high housing costs. So the knee-jerk reaction when we talk about strong towns, when we talk about the way we, we're, we're going to have to start paying attention to cost and development, the knee-jerk reaction is, well, you're just going to raise housing costs. And, and that's hard to get ahead of. Uh, because the, the the logical comeback is doing things the way we're doing now raises costs for everybody. Yeah. Yes, we may have to raise costs for this individual development or this group of property owners that want to come into the city. But if we don't, we're going to raise costs for everybody. Well, that's harder to get ahead of than the knee jerk. You're going to raise housing costs. Uh, so, again, we have to be very sound in our methods. We've been pretty facilitative to developers in the past and, and growth. Uh, you know, we have, if, if you want to come in and, and develop a new housing development, uh, you know, we will make you put 30% down. We will special assess the rest. We'll even borrow the money for you in the form of general obligation bonds. We'll assess it to the lots, uh, you know, and, and we won't make you pay for the arterials that you're, we know are going to have to be rebuilt at a certain point. And when you, when you and, say that, just so people understand, you, you're actually talking about being the bank for the developer, right? You're kind of financing the infrastructure for them, right? Yeah, when when cities issue general obligation bonds for residential developments, that's essentially what they're doing. Is they are the banker. Yeah, they're going to come in and 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 and, and basically they're going to put thirty percent down, and they will basically pay for thirty percent of that initial infrastructure. The city, using the full faith and credit of the the other residents, and that you're going to borrow that money, and then they're going to special assess it per lot back to people who buy lots in those developments. And so yeah, we're we're playing the banker there, and. That, from a facilitator standpoint, that 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 really goes a long way. There's cities that don't do that. There's cities that say, if you want to develop, you you turn over the infrastructure to us. But we we have been a little more pro development because we we've grown in Hayes, but our our growth is very slow. And and so in the past, we've always wanted to do everything we can to help facilitate development. So I know a lot of those difficult conversations as far as arterials. You know, hey, you're going to we know at some point we're going to have to rebuild this arterial. Um, it's it's hard to make the developer because we because we grow so slowly. It's hard to have that conversation with that first development out there or the second development out there. And it's only until it gets sixty seventy percent built out that you realize that you know now the arterial needs rebuilt. But you know who's going to pay for it? And the public at large picks up the tab. So we're trying to be more proactive in those conversations, and and that's always going to be difficult because people will view it as simply adding cost on rather than reallocation of cost. Right, right. I just want to have one last question for you. You had emailed me a, a couple of weeks back about Gatsby Rule 34 in the mid-90s, and, and I, I thought it was a really good insight. You, you mentioned the concept of running the city like a business, and I, I'd like to give you a shot to talk about that because as you pointed out in the email, you know, cities do public goods and we're certainly not in the business of trying to maximize a profit, but applying business principles is something else. And it's something most cities don't do and, and really need to. Can you just elaborate a little bit on the idea of running the city as a business and, and what that means for a, a municipality that really is a collection of us? I mean, it's a providing public goods. Yeah, and you know, it's it's something I've always struggled with because there there's almost a call and response situation that goes on. Somebody somebody will say cities or government, any any government should be run like a business. And the immediate response is governments are providing public goods and collective goods and you can't run those like a business. Right. And and I get that. Um I, you know, it it's very hard. I mean, I don't want to go to a service where we run our fire service under under a pure business uh uh you know, supply and demand right, type economic right. model. You know, and and actually, that's been tried in the past with, with fire service. 
And if you didn't pay for that fire service, if your house catches on fire, but you didn't pay for the service, the fire department's going to come and hose down the houses on either side of you to make sure they don't burn down. Right, right. Uh, but that's not good for the community. And, and, and it does, parks, police, things like that, um, you know, these are public goods and collective goods that, that, that I don't think should be operated purely on a profit motive. But the problem is, is I think cities have gone too far overboard in that response that, you know, government shouldn't be run like a business, that we don't use enough business tactics in, in, in our operations. And and that is what we're trying to do here is to try to use more business tactics and, and, and business methods in our operations. And GASB 34, to me, is just the absolute perfect illustration of this. Uh, I, I forget the year GASB 34 was issued, but it was late 90s, I think. Yeah. And... It you know Gasby it was it was Gasby thirty four was it, it was ostensibly made to make financial statements and easier to understand and comprehend, and but in Gasby thirty four the most significant aspect was that cities had to value all of their capital assets, and then they had to start depreciating for those capital assets, and there was a a huge outcry and I fell into it. You know, there was a huge outcry. Yep. How the heck are we supposed to know what our streets are worth? How are we supposed to know what our water system is worth? Right. How do you put a price on on this? And that was the knee-jerk response from cities all over the United States. Upon retrospect, when I look at it, if I don't know what my streets are worth, then how the heck do I know how much I should be spending on them every year? Right. How should I know what the expected depreciation is uh, and, and what I should expect to spend? Uh, when I add a new street, how do I know what the liability is, I'm assuming, if I don't know what my streets overall are worth? And, you know, it was a, a, a bit of a wake-up call to me, you know, as we started to get into this, just the, the absolute lack of business sense that, that we utilized here. Uh, I, I, I have regular meetings with the, the head of our, our local energy company, and you know, when they add a new gas line, when they add a new, when they add a new uh, electric line, when they replace an electric line, when they put a new substation in, they're depreciating that. They're booking that depreciation. They're, they are, they, they know the day they put it in, if they have the capital rate in place to cover the cost of that line. If not, they, they put it in place. They run on business tactics. And, and that's something that we just haven't been doing enough of. And, and, and again, I think it's because when you are a city, you're so diverse and there's so much things going on and there's so many things you do that benefit others. And so that's when you start paying attention to, well, let's make a public investment in this. So these three businesses are going to locate here, but look at all the ancillary benefits. Let's look at what secondary recirculating dollars do to the economy. Let's look at that. And, and I know there's an economic argument that, that that's not made up. I mean, I understand that you know that there are secondary benefits of recirculating dollars through an economy, but when you completely stray away from the direct cost and direct benefits and only make your decisions based off of those those secondary and tertiary benefits, then I think that's where where cities get into trouble. And it doesn't matter whether it's residential development, commercial development, industrial development, and, and you know so then it becomes. You're, you're accepting a liability, but you're doing it from a standpoint of you're 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 adding to the public good, right? Um, without quantifying it, and and that's where the that's where the, the just the, the core trouble begins when you start you start doing that stuff. It has always been amazing to me that you know, essentially we make those you you call them secondary arguments, which are are valid economic arguments, but you still got to pay the bills, right? You still have to pay the bills, and I think it also depends on the level of 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 need or desperation in your community. Uh, if you are a community that that has 10% unemployment and you can make a $3 million investment that maybe, you know, direct cost and direct benefits maybe doesn't pencil out, but it could knock your employment rate down, unemployment rate down to seven, that might be the, the secondary benefit that's actually worth it right. uh, to make that investment. But a lot of times that stuff is thrown out the window. It's just, hey, you know, this this sounds good. Or um, we're going to we're going to just forget about what the direct costs are and only deal off the secondary cost, secondary benefits. Right, right. Well, Toby, this has been fantastic, and I I'm so glad that people are getting a chance to hear from you, from a city manager who is struggling with this stuff, and. 
I respect all that you're doing. I really particularly respect the fact that you've not tried to kind of resort to a simple solution, uh, but have acknowledged the complexity of this. And, and I think taken the most professional approach I've seen towards trying to work through it. So will you do me a favor and just keep in touch? And, and if there's something more we can, we can chat about here, I'd love to do that. I think people are going to benefit a lot from hearing you. Absolutely. And, and I appreciate the work that you guys do. And, and we need, we need as many people as we can get as part of, part of the strong towns organization, because we need, we need as many people across the United States as we can get actually viewing their community through the, through the strong towns lenses. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. And I, I appreciate all you've done for us. And seriously, and I'm not just saying this, if there's ever a need that you want to just sit and talk and brainstorm some stuff, give me a call. I mean, I'd, I'd love to chat with you and kind of keep this momentum going. And and even if it's late at night, I mean, give me a call and you and I can just talk for a little bit. And I, I won't have all the answers either. But if we can work through some of these things, uh, you know, we can help each other out. Well, that sounds great. I appreciate it. Okay. Hey, thanks, Toby. You take care. Thanks, everybody, for listening today, and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Kansas anymore.